welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here, Electronically Yours, once again. Today is part two of Richard Evans' fantastic overview of the birth, development and eventual waning, I suppose, of electronic pop music from the late 70s to 83, I think it is, 79 to 83, 78 to 83, which I would liken to the the kind of explosion of rock and roll to a certain extent, uh, considering the influence it's had on future generations. Uh, and I think Richard is very good. I told him at the end, he said, you know, he explains this in a very lucid and concise manner, which I'm very envious of, because I ramble continuously. And I think, uh, as I mentioned, that it's really important that this is documented this period because it's it's just imp an important part of musical popular music development and uh, anyway here he is this is part two of Richard Evans analysis of that period So we're on transition now, is that right? We're on transition, yes, exactly. Yeah. So transition is the playlist of tracks that are mentioned or discussed in the book, uh, in part three of the book, which is covers the years 1980 and 1981. Perfect. Okay. Um, and just to just as a little recap, you know, like they do at the beginning of uh, shows for Netflix or whatever. Um, just in a minute, just recap what the first two playlists were about so that people... Okay, so the playlists we've already had a look at and that are part of part one of this podcast um, are the playlists for um, Inspiration, uh, which is the music that happened before 1978, the music that was sort of setting up this movement to happen. Uh, and then the second playlist is called Revolution, which is 1978 and 1979, which is the sort of the earliest experimentation uh, in the electronic pop era, uh, post-punk. Post-punk, yeah. Um, which, you know, we uh, we as the Human League and Heaven 17 were slap banging in the middle of, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, Transition, 8081. Um, yes, I'm looking at this playlist. Of course, you could... Um, uh, transition, 8081. Um, you can... Uh, start by talking us through what's on the playlist here. and of course the listeners can can actually go to this playlist and and yeah, follow absolutely. it as we're talking about it so yeah. it's like a bit like one of them you know kind of where you you know you all watch a film together or something <laughs> um okay so we start with john fox who i'm an enormous fan of and friend of absolutely uh, yeah and, and, and uh, i have to say that i think uh metamatic is one of one of the great under underestimated un, underappreciated albums from that period. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's a real shame. In, in some ways, it was a real shame because it came right on the heels of of uh, Gary Newman's success, and it shared so many sonic qualities that I think from the start, John Fox was sort of struggling um, because although he was the inspiration for Gary Newman, um, he 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 was sort of seen as as almost an also ran. Um, at, at the time, which I think was very, very unfair for John um, and for Gareth, uh, who, who Gareth Jones, who, who worked on the album with him, who was also sort of, you know, a big yeah. part of the, the shaping of, of of this sound. That's Gareth Jones, in case anybody didn't know. Gareth Jones, yeah. Who's also uh, an electron electronically yours alumnus. Um, so, yeah, so John, maximum respect. 
and I still see, see him from time to time. He's still making amazing music. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's um, yeah, carry on. Sorry. It's fantastic. It's the, the new John Fox piano album is is just brilliant. Right, I'll have a listen to that. Mm. Um, Japan loved them. They were label mates of ours on Virgin. Um, I desperately tried to get uh, the lead singer on, but he's not having it. But I did get Richard Barbieri on to the podcast. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You can listen to that. Um, Japan, I think, are they were like, like one of them bands, a bit like um, John Fox, where they were a little bit ahead. I think that's... the timing wasn't quite perfect, was it? Yeah, it's like they were always a little bit out of step with the times. Yeah. Uh, sort of just ploughing their own furrow and every now and again the fashion sort of caught up with them for a while and then the fashion moved away again so it's like they sort of they sort of dipped in and out um, but in 1980 they started to sort of bring out the records that they're best known for um, so the first couple of records on this playlist are I Second That Emotion and Quiet Life uh, brilliant and um, fantastic the ghost of my life. I love that track. Yeah, um, my favourite. <laughs> it's just beautiful in the arrangement, everything about it, and the keyboard parts and the, the, the atmosphere of it is just astonishing. Yeah, and he performs it beautifully. Mm. Like, do you know, I've got a theory that um, David Sylvian was quite stung by comparisons that people made to him, to Brian Ferry. Yes. Uh and, and, you know, it's a bit like criticising Glenn for sounding a bit like Bowie or something. I think it's unfair. Basically. And I think also it's a massive compliment because, you know, to, to sound like either of those guys is, you know, that's that's pretty cool, isn't it? I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, I know, I, I, yeah, anyway, I, I, I think he suffered a bit from that. And he's quite a, uh, he's quite, he's a very quiet character, isn't he? He's, mm. a, he's a very sensitive character. Yeah. And I think sometimes you need to have a little bit of a thicker skin to kind of push push through the bullshit to get to be successful. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Orchestral Moves in the Dark, who can never be accused of having thin skin, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it's, a, it's like they were kicking up. It's like, funny enough, after uh, uh, we've got a, a couple of tracks here from, from OMD, including Electricity and Messages. Uh, and then after that, immediately is the Human League with Rock and Roll Nightclubbing. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that I'm right in saying that you both had your first Top of the Pops appearances uh, on the same show. Um, so is you were, right? Yeah, you, you were doing Rock and Roll and they were doing, I can't remember if it was Messages or Electricity. Um, but but yeah, they they were on the, on the same show. I mean, I, lo I love the guys. Again, they've been on the podcast. Mm. Uh, I, I'm getting really well with them, and we've done the occasional show with them. And lovely people, uh, talent, super talented. Uh, I, I have to be honest. At the time, I th I thought they were a little bit lightweight for me, right? Uh, in terms of the kind of sonic palette. Mm. Uh, who am I to say that I could have just been bitter, bitter and twisted? <laughs> every chance i thought we were a bit more kind of we felt that we were a bit more electropunk and the other thing of course is if they were on that that particular episode at the top of the pops they probably appeared with their tape machine as in fact we did so we were a, a little bit upset 
Oh man, it's pathetic now looking back on it. A little bit upset that we we felt that it was originally our our idea, which it was, mm. and they saw us uh, do that at um, Eric's nightclub in Liverpool. Yeah, I'm not saying Nick the idea is a good idea. You know, mm. it's a good look to him. Uh, but the fact that we were both on the same show probably did wind us up a bit at the time because we thought it was a bit of a hook. Yeah, but I think that show, early 1980, I think that show sort of was pointing a very, very definite electronic direction in the charts. Oh, it was. Yeah. And they wrote some fantastically... Oh, yes. You know, fantastically catchy songs. I mean, of that, there is no doubt. Um, and and because we're on, actually, at this point, on the Eurovision weekend, Eurovision by Telex, who, again, <laughs> have been on the podcast. <laughs> is there anybody who hasn't? <laughs> Uh, David Bowie hasn't, unfortunately. But anyway, coming on to that. But uh, Telex, I love Telex. Yeah, I love Telex too. It's like it's really nice to see that that, that their new reissue through Mute uh, is starting to give them some of the. I think some of the credit that they've been due for years, but they've never quite got. It's 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 a bit it's been a bit of a strange one. But yeah, the fact that they were the Belgian entry on the Eurovision yeah. Song Contest in 1980 is is a brilliant little sort of side story. Uh, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed finding out about that in the book. Well, also, um, a a big track for us in the clubs at that time was Moscow Disco. Yes. Uh, and still is, actually. If I if, if I DJ, I, it generally makes it into my set. Yeah. People love it. Um, so lots more orchestral manoeuvres. Then we've got Japan again. Uh, of course, Bowie. You can't... I mean, funnily enough, I was talking about um, Ashes to Ashes yesterday with my engineer, Chaz, who's like 26. Right. He loves it as well, you know. And um, we've actually done, we did a cover version of that. Um, we've just been working on refining a cover version of that, which Peter Coyle's going to perform with us. Would be, that is fantastic. Um, and that's going to be good as well. But yeah. of course, Ashes to Ashes, fashion, you know. Just brilliant stuff. Well, uh, he's kind of outside the book a little bit, but he's also runs through the book completely. But I've included him there because he kind of stole a march on the new romantics. You know, it's like he he brought out that imagery and that sort of sound first. You know, he he beat fade to grey. You know, he right. you know, and sort of you know bought bought that whole sort of style into the into the mainstream. So you know, it seemed like a good way of sort of introducing. The, the new romantic movement, which 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 sort of we go on to next. Yeah. Uh, to cut a long story short, because um, I've always been a kind of Soho habitué and um, in London, and there were rumblings around because I've, I've always been kind of involved, in, uh, not not as a promoter, but involved in that kind of club scene at that time and in central and with various friends and uh, there was a rumbling about that oh there's this new band and they're doing their launch and you know the uh, kilt and uh and uh and then to cut a long story short came out and it was i thought surprisingly good yes i mean very, musically it was more sophisticated than i thought it was going to be yeah uh it wasn't just straightforward pop like a lot of those things tended to be at that point um so yeah, full march to them, and um, it was all downhill from there. So I could. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's not. I'm so naughty. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. 
I think they get, they get unfairly bracketed because of the success of the later records, which were so different, you know, yeah. and I think, I think people sort of forget where they came from, you know. They were that. very, very mainstream. Yes, I mean, exactly. uh, uh, later. And uh, at this time, we were heavily involved with um, the kind of, uh, shall we say, the, the, the black musician scene that came from, you know, the kind of gospel tradition. Mm. And and, uh, and and church in London in general, normally like Hackney and stuff. And um, as soon as we saw Beggar and Co, right, uh, uh, we I decided I wanted to work with them, and so we did. And then they became our kind of default horn section for a while with BEF. And lovely guys, and they're still performing now, amazingly. Um, <coughs> so. Moving on, uh, Fate of Grey. Now, tell me your opinion about Fate of Grey. Does it have any connection to being boiled? Because I never thought about this until a couple of people mentioned it to me. Oh, that's a really interesting one. It's like, no, I've not thought about that connection either. Um, it's like, I, I think Fate of Grey is, is, is one of those defining moment records. You know, it, it just came through at that time and it was smooth and commercial but without being overtly commercial it sort of still felt cool um and i think it shares those qualities with being boiled but musically musically uh, it shares a similar yeah baseline driven and the progressions are the same so it's I can't yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah. i've not even thought about it to be honest no. um i'm not really talked to rusty or uh mitch uh both alumni uh about it uh because it only got mentioned to me recently i'm going well maybe yeah i mean you know it's like the the, the, the guys would definitely be aware of it wasn't it because fate of gray came from a song that was jammed on the gary newman tour is that um, right so on the gary newman tour the keyboard players were chris payne uh yeah. and um billy curry um oh, so right. he was just sort of in between the two ultra boxes Right. Uh, and they used to sort of jam this 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 thing, you know, when they were doing their sound checks on the Gary Newman tour, uh, when they were Gary Newman's backup band. And then after the tour, they took it to Martin Russian's Genetic Studios, which was still being built at that time. It was like a building site. Right. Uh, they used to sort of camp down in um, in, in Berkshire somewhere, and, and they started to play around with the with the with the with the you know the the the, the studio. I know who I need to talk to is uh, I've just interviewed him as well, Dave Dave Allen. Oh yes, uh, he'll know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And he's, yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm just interested. <laughs> um, there's no lawsuits coming out, right? Um, so more Ultravox, "Dreams of Leaving," which is my favourite personal song on Travelogue. Um, I mean, you know, not really a pop record, but. Uh, that points in yeah. another direction in terms of kind of episodic narrative, like creating a narrative, a narrative within a song, which actually is a tradition that was probably influenced by things like Van de Graaff Generator for us, and, right. and King Crimson and mm. concept albums. You know, we loved all that stuff. <laughs> um, Joy Division now. Yeah. So, give us your take on Joy Division. Well, obviously, you know, like everyone else in the world, I love Joy Division. 
Um, but they're not technically an electronic artist, but I felt that they should be in introduced into the book as Joy Division rather than later when they became New Order and started sort of embracing electronics more. Partly because of Martin Hannett, their, their producer at the time, who sort of introduced these sort of layers of experimental strangeness, uh, these sort of, you know, sonic atmospheres that he built up, you know, through using electronics and things. But also because the band themselves were very interested in, in, in everything that was going on around them. I think Bernard Sumner built his own synthesizer. Yeah. His first synthesizer was, uh, was, was something he built from a kit. Um, so it's like they had that Likewise interest. With Likewise with Ian Marsh. His first right. synthesizer was, right. was built from the same kit, I think. It was a duty. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so I've included them because, you know, at this point it's, you know, Atmosphere Level Terrors Apart, um, which came out after the death of um, Ian Curtis. Uh, and and, uh, and that from that tragedy, of course, came New Order, um, which more of which later. Yeah. Um, and our mates and... Um... Uh, and our mentors, Cabaret Voltaire, who I adore. Yes. And uh, I think, well, certainly for, I know their influence goes way beyond Sheffield, but for people, for, as a template for daring experimentation and independence as artists, uh, they were a massive influence on us and many other people in Sheffield at that time. They were the Dons. Yeah, they were a little bit older than us, and they were they were more daring. They had their own kind of rehearsal studio. They were just what we aspired to be. Not necessarily the music, but you know, that's fine. You can all have different paths, and they can all be good. Um, and tell yeah, tell me what you think about the cabs. Oh, I I love the cabaret Voltaire. It's like I, I think they're fantastic, and it's like. They're kind of like simple minds in that there's different cabaret Voltaires depending on what stage of their career you're talking about. Yeah. And I, I kind of, you know, in writing the book, it hadn't really occurred to me, but uh, I kind of felt sorry for them in the same way as some other people in that they should have been ahead of the curve. But by the time they managed to get their records out, they were almost behind the curve and playing catch up, you know, which must have been incredibly frustrating for them and for and for other people. I think they were ahead of the curve. Yeah. Commercially behind the curve. Yeah. But, you know, it's but like... having said that, you know, when the big boom time came where record companies was, it was like, you know, it was like uh, the gold rush, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> you know, they were post punk, they were, I don't know who's that is. Anyway, uh, post punk, they were signing a lot of people who in normal circumstances probably wouldn't have got signed to me. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the cabs got signed and I was, nobody was more pleased than me. I was a little bit astounded, but I think they kind of, they, they, they kind of worked on the, um, there was the burgeoning dance scene at that point, And they thought, oh, well, we can do some dance beats and we can still be weird over the top of it. And that's how yeah. I think they saw it. And, and and they were heavily influenced by people like Daff, who were next on the list. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and well, there's a mutual influence. And uh, there was all that kind of Germanic thing coming through, which is a little bit more dance-oriented. Um, and then, of course, Silicon Teens. Yeah, Silicon Teens. Uh, that's another... Explain who they are for the people who don't. Okay, so Silicon Teens are entirely the creation of Daniel Miller. 
who founded Mute Records and was the normal. Uh, he, um, after doing the normal, he decided that if he was a record company, which he sort of was, if he had a million pounds, then he would want to sign up uh, an electronic pop band. Um, <laughs> and so he created one. He yeah. called them Slick and Teens. He invented personas for the four members of the band. Uh, they were all ostensibly children in school still, you know, making their making their music in their bedrooms. Uh, and he did a combination of uh, cover versions of old rock and roll stuff uh, and original material. He released it as Silicon Teens and it was a hit. Um, it was kind of amazing and, you know, cheeky and audacious. Uh, and it, it got as far as um, um, they were on the Radio 1 A-list. Uh, they were... They were Bited onto uh, round table on Radio One with um, with Richard Skinner, and because there wasn't a band, he had to hire people to play the parts of the band members. So I think Keith right. Allen was involved because he was the manager. Is uh, that right? Yeah, Dan Daniel himself played the part of one of the one of the band members. Fad Gadget played the part of the other male band member. Wow. Yeah. So it was a, it was this sort of extraordinary deception, and it just sort of felt like he got in deeper and deeper and deeper. And um, was that on mute? And that was on mute. Yes. Right. So that would that must have been one of their earliest hits then. It was, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the that Daniel licensed um Silicon Teens maybe to Seymour Stein um uh, in, in America and and to, to one of the majors over here as well, I think. Uh, wow. and that money, the, the licensing money from Silicon Teens was basically what was his capital for moving mute forward. Well, I never knew that. Thank you for <laughs> that. Um and now we move on to Gary Newman. Of course, we could probably do. I have done an episode on Gary Newman with Gary Newman. Um, just briefly sum up the uh, earthquake that was Newman coming oh, up. Gary Newman. It's like he. It was. He was the first person to really to enjoy stellar success um, in this generation of electronic music. You know, it's like he came out of nowhere. You know, he had this sort of punk rock attitude, punk rock music, which he then sort of, you know, put through the electronic filter. And it, it kind of worked, you know. It's like Our Friends Electric was his first hit with, which was two songs stuck together, um, you know, which was a, a brilliant, a brilliant thing. And it's like, when you listen to it, you can hear those two parts and you just think, how did that, how did that ever happen? Um, but I think, you know, it's like, like so many people at this time, he was so big, so fast. That the pressure on him for this for, for this telecon album which was his next project must have been absolutely immense you know and, i think he was pretty i think he was pretty driven though wasn't he i mean yeah, absolutely and, and still is actually yes. i just saw there was a facebook post yesterday so uh and he was on, he's on tour at the moment and he said i've just done 15 dates in 16 days i saw that <laughs> what the what is that all about? Are you mad? <laughs> he said, "Yeah, it's a bit tiring." I'm damn right. And what <laughs> what are his um, what are his promoters thinking? Oh, that's not right. Anyway, I don't think. Um, so moving on, uh, we got various. Uh, oh, of course, Vienna is brilliant. Yeah. And uh, launcher of launcher of a thousand trench coats. <laughs> <laughs> tell tell us what you thought about Vienna when it came out. 
when it came out, I wasn't quite sure about it, to be honest. Um, it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, it, it was, it was, it was, it was so smooth and so radio. Um, but I do remember that it came out. It started. It went onto radio before Christmas, and it got onto the playlist fairly low, I think. But because they froze their playlists over the Christmas period. Um, it was just played and played and played over this Christmas period where nothing was really happening. Uh, and then they released it after Christmas and they're sort of, they're sort of the, the, the whole thing, you know, the ball was already rolling for it. Um, and um, I think that uh, I, I feel sorry for the band in that the thing that people always seem to remember is that Vienna only made it to number two. Yeah, I Wise With Temptation, we're, yeah. we're the two most famous number twos from that. Yeah. <laughs> But I think uh, just to sum it up, for me, obviously a great piece of work, but it's this kind of uh, this um, classic new romantic notion of, you know, kind of uh, film noir mm. uh, ennui and, uh, <laughs> and and kind of, uh, oh, we'll always have Vienna, you know, and, and like this idea of making tracks that you want to be, like yeah, a kind of film soundtrack, really, mm. or a film theme at least. Um, I, and I think that's quite an important part of the whole new romantic thing because we, you know, we, this was the launch of MTV essentially around right about this yeah. period, wasn't it? And that got massively played. The video got made it massive hit actually. I think. Um, anyway, so uh, Simple Minds, we've got to give them an honourable mention because I love their. More a more electronic period at the start. Of yeah, the absolutely. Me too. Um, much more so than when they turned to rock. And um, but you know, horses of course as to whatever you want. I don't care. But I just like that period personally. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree. It's like it's, it, 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 Simple Minds are a really interesting band because they've sort of trod in so many different different lines. You know, covered so many different styles, and it's like I, although they, they they are a rock band now, you can still sort of feel that those influences are, are in there. You know, not on all their tracks, and maybe not on some of their their biggest singles. Um, yeah. But if you sort of you know delve down into the albums a little bit, you can sort of still find that that DNA is is, yeah. is still sort of traceable back to this sort of experimental art school sort of period that they went through at, at this point. Okay, I'm going to try and zip through because we're only halfway through. Yeah, of course. Good Lord. Um, so Einstein and Gogo, fantastic, of course, Richard Burgess, and he went on. At the same time as me, we started our production careers at about the same time. Yeah. In fact, he did a version of the Hot Gossip album, which, I, which uh, they ended up canning because it was a bit too uh, kind of american sounding apparently yeah. uh they wanted something a bit edgier so they came to me to do it so that's where our connection started of course yeah. only if i was going to ask you about that because that's in the book um yeah. that you took over the production from richard burgess of the well it was done the album was finished it, right his his version yeah they played it to me and i thought this is really sophisticated but it's, it doesn't really match their image you know and it proves to be the case so <clears throat> anyway Unfortunately, Hot Gossip isn't on Spotify, so they they're not on the playlist. Although they would have been Hot if, they, if they were available. On Spotify. I couldn't find them. I could find Starship Trooper, but I couldn't find any of of of, of, your, of your record. How interesting! It's on YouTube. 
I mean, most of the yeah. Yeah, yeah. stuff. Um, anyway, and then we come on to <laughs> so Duran Duran. For me, and I love chanting number one, Spandau Ballet, by the way, a uh, quick mention for that. Um, but Duran Duran changed the landscape for me because then we're moving into full, <coughs> full on, unashamed pop. Yes. What's your view? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's like, you know, this, this, this my, my book is, is about the pop music, you know, the putting the popular into electronic music. And yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, they were the first pinups. Um, they were the first sort of, you know, band to attract that teen audience. Um, and also they, they, they came out with some great records. No, they did. They were pop records. They were fairly simple. Um, but they were really super catchy. And, you know, although they weren't an electronic band entirely, you know, everything had those swathes of Nick Rhodes synthesizer over them that I, th I think made them special, made them stand out. I would agree completely. Oh, God, we'd never disagree about anything, do we? <laughs> um, I would agree completely that I think um, it's, the, it's the synthetic elements that, that change them from a very good pop band mm into something that's got a bit more edge yeah and um and still uh, even the later albums you know recently and stuff i, yeah. I think it's the case yeah no, I think they did it they did an album of their influences no you must remember that nick rhodes did it and uh yeah, rhodes and john taylor i think it was yeah oh, john taylor who's a good mate actually he's a nice yeah. guy um and um being boyle was on their album of yes. influences, so. yeah um Okay, so I'm, that's quickly skimming over Duran Duran. I'm not meaning to, it's just we've got a little bit of time. Uh, Bizarre, Spanda Ballet, Depeche Mode. So, yeah, so we, we sort of run into a little run of, of artists and, and on this playlist we've got Depeche Mode, then we've got Soft Cell, then we've got Blamange. Uh, and they're all on there together as a little flurry because they were all on the Some Bizarre album, um, which Steve put okay. together as a sort of a showcase uh, of the new sort of up-and-coming electronic artists that he was so enamoured by. Uh, and um, that came out on Some Bizarre. Uh, and it was the first time that anyone had heard any of these bands. And interestingly, although there was maybe 15 bands on the album, uh, straight away, everyone pretty much zoomed in on um, Soft Cell, Le Monge, Depeche Mode. Uh, and and they were all great. Uh, yeah. And I did uh, Le Monge's first demos. In my yes. studio, in our studio, in yeah, and um, I thought they were fantastic when they turned up with the demos. I mean, I basically I just kind of tidied them up a bit, added a couple of things, and then somebody else got the got the bloody job, didn't they? I was so pissed off. Um, anyway, I told him since, and I tease him all the time about it. Um, Soft Cell, they're good mates of ours, obviously. Tainted Love, where did our love go? One of the great 80s 12 inches, in my opinion, oh, yeah, always yeah. fills the dance floor. Always, yeah. yeah, still stands up today, you know, as, as fresh as a daisy. That one, that is, yeah. And of course, Depeche Mode again, I prefer it when Vince was with them. I got less interested progressively as they turned into a stadium rock act, personally. Um, it's just me, though. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, well, actually, I'm from Essex, um, so I'm, I, I come from Chelmsford, so they were in Basildon, just down the road. So they sort of felt like local heroes. And it's like, although Chelmsford and Basildon don't, don't share much, 
it's like we felt we could share them. So that was exciting to sort of see them in the charts. And, you know, that that first Speak and Spell, the first album with Vince was great. But actually, unlike you, I, I, I stuck with them. All right. <laughs> um, okay. Kind of through everything, you know, and it's like... A, a, I'm not knocking them, by the way. No, no, I'm, I'm not, saying not. I lost interest personally because yeah. I just found it all a bit... Yeah. I, a bit I, one paced. I found that they sort of that they changed their sounds kind of as I was changing my tastes, uh, and broadly they Depeche Mode and I seem to always be in step. Oh, that's uh, good for a few years. So they sort of you know moved into that sort of you know industrially you know sampling heavy yeah. sort of area, area, and they sort of did their sort of you know big epic rock stuff and their sort yeah. of stadium stuff, and then you know all the way through to Violator uh, and. After that, they probably started to step down a little bit in in in, in my importance list, um, but I still listen to them today. We Bless don't them. Talk, don't want to talk to Cheeming Lie about him. Jesus, I don't know what they ever did to him, but he's, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not the greatest. He really is not a fan, is he? Let's <laughs> of later Depeche Mode. Of later Depeche Mode. Anyway, um, then there's various other tracks which you can check out for yourself. Um, oh, Superman was a big game changer for me personally yeah yeah it was one of those records that just came along you just think what the fuck is this yeah <laughs> you know because it was so different and so strange you know and i i love that it became such a big hit you know it's like i think that's a sort of testament to the sort of the quirky british music tastes you yeah. know that, that britain could sort of put oh superman in the top five you know and and this this strange piece of avant-garde performance art music oh, brilliant I, I absolutely adored it and and um to the extent that when we started when me and vince started illustrious in 2000 one of the th earliest things that we did was a cover version of oh superman in three oh, really? yeah <laughs> it has never been released right uh it's good yeah, it's oh, I bet it is. I can imagine sitting and having that in 3D around you, swirling oh, yeah. around you. Yeah. Oh, it works. Yeah. Uh, trust me. <laughs> okay, moving on. A lot of Heaven 17, Human League. And I can't knock um, the uh, Human League Mark II. Dare was an insanely good album, um, as evidenced by the fact that it sold. Sure. And, I, and scrolling down, I've just realised that actually the hot gossip tracks are on this. They are. Are yeah. on this playlist, so they are on Spotify. So take oh, the other okay. bit back. Take <laughs> back yeah. Um, I don't. I mean, let's talk about uh, Human League Mark Two. Uh, hmm. I mean, within the bounds of the scope of your book, which goes up to the end of '83, I suppose. They were absolutely at the top of their game, weren't they? I suppose they were. Yeah, yeah, they were crucial uh, in 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 every sort of section of the book. You know, in in the sort of the revolution part, in the transition part, and in the mainstream part. You know, yeah. they 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 you know you and they you know the subsequent human league nailed it at, at each stage. Yeah, yeah. overall, they yeah, It kind of isn't a more significant band in the book. I don't think there is really. Um, for pure pop, um, uh, what's your favorite Human League Mark II track? Um, controversially, perhaps, um, I always go for the Love and Dancing album, um, which I sort of consider as one track because everything sort of mixes together. Um, but I absolutely loved it, you know, it's like I'd never heard anything like that before, I just thought it was completely brilliant. 
Well, uh, uh, you know what? In, well, you probably do because it's your specialist subject on mastermind. But the uh, I remember talking to um, people about it who were around Phil because we weren't talking at the time. But um, it was inspired by those great um, Barry White limited mm. orchestra, but also uh, Isaac Hayes as well. You know, the idea of doing these long, drawn out tracks uh and we were both both myself and phil were enormous isaac Hayes, barry white fans yeah the so i know that's where it came from anyway um yes my first production was in fact arlene phillips hot gossip uh and quite proud of that she was very fond of early human league and early hem 17 and there's some examples of that on there homo sapien by pete shelley now i absolutely adore Buzzcocks. Mm. Uh, I think them together with the Damned were my favourite punk bands and post-punk bands uh, from you know that s- stayed with it. Yeah. And um, and it, Homo Sapien, for those who never heard it, is a, a kind of movement into electronics. So describe it for us. Yeah. So Homo Sapien's an, an odd one, really, because um, <laughs> Pete, Pete Shelley had new songs for a new Buzzcocks record. But the Buzzcocks weren't getting on particularly well at that point. Um, Pete Shelley, on his own, went to the Buzzcocks producer, uh, who was Martin Rushant, uh, who was also responsible for Dare. Um, and he played these songs to to, to Martin. Um, and Martin said, let's, let's, let's ele- electronic them up. Um, and uh, Pete, Pete Shelley already had an interest in electronic music. He'd made an electronic album previously to that. Um, which had sort of just gone under the radar. No one had really sort of noticed it coming through. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it's like the Buzzcocks split. Pete Shelley had this new solo album, which was produced by uh, Martin Russian, who also became his manager. Uh, and um, it sort of, that that it, it, it sits at that sort of dividing line between punk and post-punk and electronic. Interesting. I really yeah, like it. Yeah, yeah, I really like it too. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we're going to have to zip through the rest of that playlist. Let's move on to, uh, well, we've got to mention the, the model, which was, you know, quite rightly the uh, the kind of book stop at the end of that 81 thing, which is just a classic, isn't it? I and mean, it was number one. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's my, not my favourite craft work track, I have to say, but uh, very, very poppy. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, no, it tick, absolutely ticked all the boxes. Uh, and actually, for me... Ah, yeah. oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. And for me, actually, the model was kind of my introduction to, to craft work. It's like I hadn't really had them on my radar previous to that. Right. Uh, when it became a hit, that was my point at which I could go backwards uh, and, and sort of find out what I'd missed. So, um, so, so for, for me personally, that's a really important... Really yeah, important. I think... Yeah, I mean, I, my entr- my gateway drug into Crawford was Trans Europe Express, but um, yeah. Anyway, I, and I think it was all more. It was a bit l- less exciting for me after that. All that, like, of you know, the the <clears throat> irony, of the we are robots and all that stuff is is kind of witty at first. Yeah, absolutely, I find it a little bit. I found it it wore off quite quick, right? For me, anyway. Yeah. And I think, obviously, you love their production style and everything; it's beautiful. Yeah. 
But I think lots of people were doing that. It became a bit of a shtick, didn't it? It's like, yeah. you know, you know, man, man as machine uh, yeah. around this movement of music. And it, it sort of lost, it lost its power, lost its value. It did um, a bit, yeah. 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 Okay, we're moving on to the uh, playlist four, mainstream, 82 to 83. And a whole bunch more OMD, Spandau Ballet, Simple Minds. And this is, as we, as the title would lead you to believe, it's moving into mainstream now. Exactly, yeah. And um, the soft cell tracks are great. Hey, say hello, wave goodbye, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. and it's like, you know, I know that the band don't particularly like what, um, but I thought that was a great, a great little track as well. You know, it's like... I, well, it's the climax of their set every time they do it, I think, uh, when we've performed with them. But what I really want to get onto now is the message, Grandmaster Flash, Planet mm. Rock. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Arthur Baker uh, yeah. and what he did for, for that kind of machine-driven um, hip-hop, I suppose. Um, and the message, of course, that's the, the message is actually kind of a protest song, really. So we're now seeing the the uh, the the melding of various genres into the into is the mainstream is now sucking all this, you know, <laughs> you got miners going on all over the place who are doing their own little things, and now now the record companies are starting to take all this ore and make it into new kind of uh, new metals, you know. Oh, that's yeah, quite absolutely. Nice. Yeah. Um, so tell me what you think. I've, I've, I know we discussed this before. Uh, I don't think the influence of Black American music and 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 Black music as it spread around the world through hip hop gets enough credit in terms of electronic music. But what do you think? Yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating, and it's like in in researching my book, um, the fact that Africa Bambata. I think he's 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 kind of the person to start with in this conversation. The fact that he was spinning such eclectic and strange music as part of his DJ sets um, was 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 incredibly interesting. You know, it's like the fact that he was picking up Yellow Magic Orchestra records and Telex records and you know most pr prominently Kraftwerk records and was you know playing them in the Bronx ghettos, you know, in in New York, you know, to to a to, to a to a completely different crowd. And Gary Newman records as well. He used to play. You know, he 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 was so eclectic and so brilliant. Uh, and then he sort of you know brought these things into Planet Rock. Um, you know, which was kind of the first record I think to come back containing like a reflection of the influences that it had taken from the UK and had reflected them back to the UK. Uh, yeah. And all of a sudden, it's like you know everyone was looking to America. You know, it's like there was the Street Sounds label was founded over here. Um, yeah. By, by by Morgan Kahn and and all of a sudden these these really interesting you know, scratching uh, mixing DJ you know records it was like almost the people who were making them weren't musicians you know they were technicians you know in yeah. in, in in their own right yeah. you know so there was this sort of this 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 slew of really exciting um, you know pro pre hip hop. Um, you know, electro records, which I just think are great. And, you know, so I've got on here the Smurf by Tyrone Brunson. Uh, I don't really know that track. Why is that on there? 
Uh, it's on there because I love it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think more interesting is the track after that, which is Magic's Wand. Oh, Bacon. Magic's Wand. I had the 12, I had two copies of the 12, right. so I wore it out. Which is Thomas Dolby. Is it? Oh, yeah, it is. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just thought, again, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, these Americans were sort of looking to Britain and saying, who's made the records that we, we've been bringing through? It's like, let's get Thomas Dolby in to sort of produce produce our record. And That's to write. right. I remember now because he talked about it. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and of course, Malcolm McLaren, the master eclecticist. Yes. Uh, I, uh, 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 iconoclast. Yeah. Good word. Um, uh, who, um, uh, who, who produced those records? Who engineered them? The Malcolm McLaren records yeah. by Trevor Horn. Ah, oh, that's right. I'm trying to think where I heard the inside dope on all this, and it must have been yeah, from so Steve Lipson. As, as I understand it, I think Mal- it was Steve Lipson did a lot of it. Right. I think. Yeah. As, as um, I Malcolm McLaren had this idea for a project yeah. and the record company would only give him the money if he had a proper producer on board to oversee things and sort of yeah. have a bit of an adult spin on everything. Uh, and, and that turned out to be Trevor Horn, um, yeah. who, and they traveled around the world recording, you know, choirs and, you know, African, you know, native music and, you know, and all sorts of weird stuff. And they sort of, you know, brought it back and, you know, started rearranging it and reassembling it and and, and turning it into a whole new different thing. I think the, yeah, I think it's the, the, the kind of poster girl for uh, for that kind of f- uh, freestyle eclecticism. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I think inspired a lot of people. That yeah, stuff. I, I think so too. It's like I feel that this... Maybe it was just this year. Maybe it's just six months or so. Yeah. And the records that were coming through fr- from from America and from from over here, they were kind of game changers as well. But yeah. you know, it's like I, I think that it's a little chapter that's mo- mostly overlooked. Um, yes. Which is which is kind of a shame. Yeah. So now we move on to Thomas Dolby, who's another friend of yeah. friend of the program, um, who I adore. He's yeah. a lovely guy. Um, at the time, my my view on 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 Thomas was clearly very clever musically, bit too kind of musical, uh, like proper musical mm. for my taste. It was almost like jazz at times, and um, I I did. It felt to me a little bit like it's already this scene was starting to do the me- uh, the meta thing, you know. It was like it was looking back on itself with a wink, <laughs> and, and I think that's pretty much. I mean, some of his stuff was just straightforward genius, you know, yeah. great, and and uh, I like the fact there was a, a degree of uh, humor involved and all that stuff, but um, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing this kind of this kind of uh, meta thing, but um, it's like it's almost like the beginning of the end of. The naivety of it. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I now people understand this scene. They're they they've lived through a certain amount of it, and now they are. Some people are going further out into the in in into into space, and other people are going right. Well, mainly driven by record companies are going. We're going to make some money out of this shit. Yeah. <clears throat> and then, of course, you get to 
And then we get of Yazoo. Yeah. And uh, and and the parallel development of Depeche Mode, and and our mate Vince, uh, who should just have a statue. There should be something, shouldn't there? You should have a statue out uh, in the fucking Ivor's office or something. <laughs> uh, or somewhere. I mean, I can't believe... I don't know if he is, but he's, they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, are they? Depeche are. Uh, so, Depeche are, but, so, not, but not Vince. Well, Depeche is... By association with Depeche, Vince right. is, 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 right. is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but only as a, a Depeche Mode member. Um, yeah. So anyway, I don't think I, we need to discuss how brilliant Yazoo were. I think um, anyone listening to your podcast will know how brilliant Yazoo uh, were. I mean, they just are. They just <laughs> are. And also Blamange, we talked about them. There's a nod towards uh, BEF there and yeah. Sandy Shaw, which is a nice cover version we did on the first BEF album. And then we're into Hem 17, they're rubbish, I've heard. Uh, yeah. Nowhere near as good as Mirror Man, which is a first <laughs> And... Um, Soft Cell, Gary Newman, we know all about them. I'm looking for things that are a bit more... Oh, mm. Da 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 was great. Yeah, it was a great little and, song. Um, surprisingly edgy when you listen to it again now, because you look yeah. at the title and you just remember the chorus. Uh, but that was the only, possibly the only pop record ever made with a VL tone uh, drum machine, I think. I don't know. What do you uh, think? I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, like those, the first handheld drum machine. My world. <laughs> Ghost, Japan, Mick Khan, who's genius. Uh, Duran Duran, Midge, No Regrets. We're all big fans of Scott Walker, so I was happy for him to have that big hit. And, and you know, Midge is a kind of thread that runs through everything. <laughs> he really is. Yeah, yeah, all the time. He's like, a, he's like, Zelig, you know, <laughs> um, and and very talented guys. So you know, we're big mates. So I would say that, but it's true. Um, orchestral maneuvers, Howard, Howard Jones. Now we're into real classic uh, pop songwriting, yeah. which which I think starts to t- starts to uh, make less of a thing about uh, the. There's a kind of agnosticism about whether it's using electronics or real guitars or everything's starting to sound processed by this point, but it's not ostensibly electronic music, even though he's a keyboard player. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's true of, of like you say, of the movement in uh, of, uh, as a whole. You know, it's <coughs> kind of the reason this is the final playlist and this is the point at which I, I leave electronic music alone in the book because it starts to be, as a term, it starts to become meaningless yeah. um, because kind of everything was electronic music by this point. You know, it's like whether you could sort of see the bank of keyboards on the stage in the, as in the case of Howard Jones, you know, sort of whirling around doing his Rick Wakeman thing with multiple keyboards set up uh, or not. You know, it's like the, the production and the instrumentation that was being used at that time by everyone kind of made this thing a little bit homogenous and it started to sort of, you know, the, the, the edges all blurred and, and everything yeah. started to become a little bit too much the same. Um, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And um, at that point, it's sort of everything headed off in its own directions 
you know so everything started to fragment into into new things so you had the electro thing in america you know it's like yeah you know, and 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 there was the more industrial thing going on as well you know goth was sort of going off in another di different direction you know with these sorts of you know more psychedelic sort of keyboardy sounds sort of underpinning it so lots of different things happening at the same time but all going off in different directions very interesting um i i just want to the the last burning bright uh, bright bright oh god shut up martin the the candle burns brightest before it goes out right eurythmics are yeah. i think possibly the last classic truly electronic uh sounding in its entirety mm. pop band before it, it all kind of dissolves into many strands what do you think about that idea yeah i agree with that as well it's like i i, I when i was researching the book i came across lots of references to david dave stewart and annie lennox um referring to the fact they'd heard yazoo they were already together making Eurythmics records. They heard Yazoo and thought that it was basically all over for them. It's like it had already happened, you know, with Vincent Allison. Uh, and there was this, I think, no rivalry at all. I think they were both mutually um, supportive of each other. Um, but they, they just came through and so perfectly image conscious. Um, I think you know, they bought this 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 new androgyny, which was, you know, kind of maybe a bit of a fashion at the, that time. You know, Grace Jones was doing similar things in in that in their area, uh, and they just packaged it. And again, it's like the the they they're proper catchy pop songs. Oh, be uh, I mean, I mean, just amazing, beautiful, yeah. uh, uh, but incredible also pop songs. I think. I mean, right uh, right up there in terms of class with uh, you know with Vince and Yazoo and all that stuff. Yeah. But they also, it's like, they also have the credibility. It's like some of the songs that weren't singles, you know, they, they were darker and more interesting uh, and, you know, more textured, uh, I think. And it's like they were, it felt like they were just having fun. It felt like they were just doing stuff because it meant something to them, which I think at that time was starting to become unfashionable because at this point, you know, it's like everything started to become quite commercial and quite, you know, maybe major label driven. Um, and it felt like they were coming from the right place. I, I think you're right. They were authentic and they felt that way. And it was a joy to, you know, when, when you, when you, when they were saying, oh, there's a new Eurythmic single coming out, it was a joy. Mm. You knew the airwaves were going to be full of it. Now they were perfect uh, radio songs as yes. well. Yeah. Um, moving on, the, the assembly, another, <laughs> another thing, uh, another one of Vince's projects didn't last very long, but um, that was great. Um, I'm moving down the list here, looking for the perfect beat, another, another Africa Bambata, Soul Sonic Force thing, and Rocket, Herbie Hancock, IOU, Freeze. I had that that record as well, yeah. and um, Rocket was quite revolutionary because, in my opinion, uh, it was very musicianly, but it was for the first time. It was musicianly with samples, really. Uh, uh, it, 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 so you've got this guy who is a classic player, songwriter, but suddenly he's gone right. This is the future. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, that that whole sort of you know scratching DJ sounds to it. You know, and it is, it, it was, and still is his biggest biggest hit. You know, yeah. even though he sort of left that behind. 
um, yeah. and he had a, 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 a stellar career before it. it it's yeah. interesting that that's the thing that he is most known for. And um, Art of Noise, uh, honourable mention for for them and the Trevor Horn project. And uh, actually, they've been performing recently, haven't they? They have, yeah. Yeah. Um, very good. Uh, and then, of course, we come on to Blum loads of Blumange and Temptation. And we kind of like reached our peak at, uh, in terms of sales at that point. So there's quite a few on there. Cabaret Voltaire gets signed to, I think it was EMI or Virgin, was it? I can't remember. Virgin, yeah. Yeah, Virgin. Uh, Midge, again, another project after a fashion with Mick Khan. Ruchi Sakamoto, God, God rest his soul. Forbidden colours, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, elegant. Ultravox, uh, Gary Newman, of course. I'm coming to the end of the playlist now. Craftwork Tour de France and Yellow. Why is Yellow the last one on the list? Interesting. Uh, the, yellow's the last one on the list because uh, there's two reasons, really. I mean, chronologically, um, in, in terms of the book, it's like it kind of, at this, that, at this point in time, it kind of had to be a hit to be included. Um, and although Yellow had been around for a little while before this, this was the first time they started to sort of, you know, skim the bottom of the charts. Um, right. That was a reason for including them. But the other reason was because they were kind of a band that I didn't really know. Um, and it's like people have asked me since I wrote the book, it's like, you know, did you find things that you didn't previously know um, that, you know, that, that became important? And for me, that was Yellow. Uh, yeah. And I, I'd never really listened to them before. And now I absolutely love them. Uh, yeah. I listen to them a lot. And I think this is one of my favourites. Uh, yeah. And because of, because of those two reasons, that's that's the reason that they made it onto this this playlist. I, I, um, I've got various versions of my DJ says a DJ and uh, one of them starts with the race. Right. I think he's a great 12 inch. It's incredible. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, a <clears throat> you could almost con, uh, you know, conceptualize it as a, an overture for this, this age, mm. uh, this age of sequenced electronics and fun. Well, um, 3D, I think having those cars, you know, yeah. Learning around. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. I should be good in 3D. You're right. Um, so let's just sum up before I ask you the Smash It's questions. Let's just sum up what we what what have we learned during this lecture? <laughs> I think we have learned that from very unlikely beginnings, um, a group of ragtag post-punk post <laughs> rebels and conceptualists basically reinvented the face of popular music, utterly reinvented the face of popular music uh, and created a golden age of which I don't think we've had anything since. I think that's very well summed up and I would agree with you on, on, on that. Um, and I think it's not just people, artists impersonating the the key players in this period, it's the fact that it literally changed the landscape. So it's like in the same way, maybe not as big an impact, but uh, in the same way that rock and roll did. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think it just changed almost overnight. It changed the way that people thought yeah. about popular music. And um, yeah, so I think I'm very happy that you made this book because it's a period that, that 
hasn't been properly documented before or given yeah. given the credit it deserves. And you're clearly the man who not only should have done it, but you did do it. So <laughs> So just tell them the title of the book and and, and the different forms it's in. Okay, the, the book is called Listening to the Music the Machines Make, Inventing Electronic Pop, 1978 to 1983. Mm. It's published by Omnibus Press. It's available as a hardback from all good booksellers and also as a digital Kindle book, also from all good electronic booksellers. You lazy bastard, you need to do the audio book. There's too many pages. There's like thousands and thousands of pages. <laughs> I, um, I said to them, I wasn't going to do lists or anything like that. It's pointless. <laughs> and thank God, because that would have been another hundred pages on the end. <laughs> anyway, okay, smash it's questions. What's okay. your favorite film? My favorite film, I've got two. Um, I've got my intellectual, um, credible choice, uh, which is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Great. Uh, and my popular choice is Doctor in the House because I love those black and white Ealing comedy type films. I just I just love them. Oh, brilliant, brilliant! Uh, favorite book? Uh, favorite book? Um, Isaac Asimov's I Robot. Great, in inspirational, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's so clever and it still stands up today. Yeah. Him, to me, him and Arthur C. Clarke are the most kind of cerebral of, of, of that period of science fiction writers. And um, in terms of narrative, there were more interesting ones, I think, like Harlan Ellison and, you know, Philip K. Dick. But I think, anyway. Um, Favourite uh, TV show? Uh, a town called Eureka. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's a surprise. <laughs> who's in that? Tell us what, who's in that. Uh, I don't remember the name of the actors, but the premise of the show is that in America somewhere, there is a little town which has been created by the government. Oh, I have seen it. I've seen yeah, it. All the greatest scientific minds live there and work on top <laughs> uh, And it's funny and silly and it just appeals to me. I have seen it. I have seen it. Yeah, it's really good. Um, who are your favourite musicians or composers? That's a tough one. Isn't it? That is a tough one. Yeah. Um, I would say outside the book because they all kind of like feel like favourites after writing it. Um, the the probably the composer I listen to the most um, is Arvo Pars. Oh, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. I performed. Um, we did a big 3D sound show in Copenhagen outdoors, and the Danish National Orchestra were playing, and they played uh, Arvo Pertz Fratres. Right. And uh, and we, we'd got all the orchestra mic'd up, and so we were moving the sounds around on a score within... Right. For the audience within the space, it was just amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm so happy with that. Um, um, who's your favourite visual artist? Uh, Mondrian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're a very rational man. I can tell. I <laughs> probably am. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, epiphanal moment. Uh, epiphanal moment. 
It would probably be seeing Toya on top of the pops for the first time. Interesting. Why? Why? Well, I think I grew up in a house where there wasn't any music. My parents weren't music fans. I think I mentioned this in the last episode, actually. Um, and so music was something I had to discover for myself. And it's like, although I was initially attracted to the style of punk, I found that the punk music that was available, I didn't really like that much. Um, but when Toya came along, she had the style and a music that I liked because it again it it comes down to production and it had that sort of wash of electronica over it. Um, right. So and, and she be, she became my gateway into pop music. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah. Have you told her this? Have you met? I, her? I have told her this. Yeah, yeah. I've I've done loads of stuff with Toya and I've met her a million times. Um, but every time I see her, I turn into that thirteen-year-old. I, I bet just, she's really happy about that because she's such a warm person uh, for people. And, you know, we all need encouragement. Everybody does. And uh, I like her a lot, Toya. I think she's yeah. great. Anyway. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Um, alternative career. Had uh, you not done this? I trained as a graphic designer, so that's probably what I would have done. If I was to train all over again, then I'd love to do something. There's a program on telly uh, behind the scenes at the VNA, uh, and they show Curator. you, yeah, they show you all these restorers, and it's like I would love to have really specific restoration skills to, you know, rebind books or mend clocks or something like that. Something very niche and very sort of, you know, clever. I've got a story about that actually. Uh, when I moved house, when I moved to Primrose Hill, what thirty odd years ago. Um, I just bought the um, the enormous painting of How Men Are, the cover, from Ray right. Smith. And I didn't know anything about how to transport things, and it just got chucked in the back of a... <laughs> I, it's unbelievable. And we wrapped it up, but, you know, I, I didn't know you had to put them in frames and, and all that stuff. Anyway, it came out, and it got ripped. Right. Uh, right, in, in almost in the middle where it was really obvious and I was heartbroken obviously I just bought it and Ray said to me oh don't worry about it I've got some friends in the VNA who can who will have a look at this for me as a favor because he's right. doing some stuff for them and um no sorry not VNA uh, Royal Academy and um took it away for a month came back and it was completely invisibly mended Tell yeah. anything that had ever happened to it. It's yeah. only on the, you could see it on the back on the canvas, but that was it. Amazing. Yeah. What, what an ability. Yeah, I mean, the, the Ray Smith, Mace, uh, I hope he's looking down. I, he's with me every day because, apart from the paintings that I've got here, he used to, we used to swap artifacts. I used to send him little bits of music. This is one of his little sculptures here, which is in my studio. Oh, so cool. Yeah. And that's there every day with me. Right. And his paintings, you can't really see. Yeah, you can, actually. Yeah, I can, yeah. Not not the photograph at the top, but Ian's poking his head around there, as you can see. Um, yeah, I, I still... Um, uh, yeah, Ray, love him. Um, okay. Um, Favourite synth? 
Uh, don't have the knowledge to know one. Oh, come, come. <laughs> I am not accepting that as an answer from you. You just an entire <laughs> book about electronic music. You must have an opinion. Okay. You know, you know what? Look, it's not a test, you know. <laughs> In that <laughs> case, can I choose the Lindrum? You can. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, who's your favourite synthetic artist? I know you say you can't pick one out because you've just done it. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I think I'm going to say... It doesn't have to be pop, by the way. It could be uh, yeah. something like Tomita or something. You know. Yeah, no, I, I, th I think I'll say Vince um, on, 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 on both levels. Right, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, and, and that's it. I think we've actually cracked it. That's it. <laughs> that was really good, man. It's, I'm sure the... Um, I'm sure the listeners will appreciate your uh, your um, love of the subject, but also the kind of con a very smart and concise way that you explain it. I think is even more impressive than than the book in some ways. You know, it's quite, quite hard to put it into a condensed form. I suppose you've done quite a lot of uh, interviews now and all that stuff. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but, it's been, it's been great fun actually. Yeah, good. And it's there forever, isn't it? It just sits on the yes, internet exactly. forever. Yes. Another part of your immense legacy, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. I will see you very soon. You take care. Cheers. Thanks for this. Bye-bye. Thank you, Richard, for that. That was an in-depth look at all that and um, you must go and check out his that we were referring to I'm sure you have done already because we were talking about it but there's a profile that's called listening to the music the machines make inventing electronic pop 1978 to 83 and there are four playlists so have a look at that it's inspiration revolution transition and mainstream and there's loads of tracks on there and apart from anything else it's just fantastic playlists so treat yourself to that and maybe even Stop listening to the podcast occasionally and listen to a track if you're not familiar with it. And I think you won't go very far wrong if you if you listen to those playlists because that's a lot of fun. How is everyone? Please feel free to email me electronicallymartin at gmail.com and please consider going to patreon.com stroke electronicallyhours where you can help support this podcast, keep it independent and ad-free. Don't you hate all those you know, righteous sons of bitches who are going on about, yeah, this is independent and free, and then there's like 10 minutes of adverts in it. I hate all that. So I've determined never to do that. And it means that I need your support to help pay for putting this together. Um, that's it for this week. Another great guest next week. Bye. Word. Hi Martin, just started listening to your podcasts. As always, been a huge fan of the original Human League. Loved listening to your recent chat with Gary Newman, especially his near-death experience. Such an interesting guy, I agree. I'd love to hear an interview between you and Jim Kerr, as the early era stuff he did with Simple Minds is some of the best early synth stuff ever, in my humble opinion. Also, a bit left field maybe, but how about Frank Morsley from A Flock of Seagulls? 
I saw the VH1 documentary of the brief AFOS reunion some years ago and found Frank's recollection of their successful years really illuminating, to say the least. Reading between the lines, I think he had more to say. And finally, Philip Adrian writes, spilling the beans is a must. Yeah, that's that's not going to happen. Who is I, that? I, uh, uh, Adrian was the... Um, uh, the, the Human League slides Right, okay, guy. okay, I'm with you. But also, uh, he got involved with writing later on with Mark II. Um, I, I asked him to uh, take part in the reproduction. Travelogue shows, uh, and he, he uh, said he had no interest in it whatsoever, so... Fair dues. Um, uh, thanks for taking the time to interview all these wonderful and interesting characters, Paul Wood. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Uh... Hi, Martin. Podcasts of quality and distinction, especially Steve Davis. Fascinating. A suggestion for another podcast, maybe Anne Dudley. That needs to go on the list. Nice. Uh, Kind regards, Andrew Saunders. This is from Ben Rompottis. Hi, Martin. Love the podcast. Currently helping this Australian get through Berlin winter. Podcast recommendations. Robert Del Naya. We just had that earlier, but that's a good suggestion. It's written down. Jeff Barrow. Um, I'll write that down. Anton Newcomb. Don't know know who that is. And Nils Fram. I think that's quite a good idea. Uh, Also, side note, I'm an audio engineer and I can't help but squirm whenever I hear the noise and heavy gating on the vocals in the pod. Would be happy to help if you need an editor. Ben, wow, wow. Yeah, fuck off, Ben. Come on, man. I'm sitting right here. <laughs> I'm right here. Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, the podcasts are recorded on Zoom um, on people's laptop mics, so I kind of do my best. Yeah, but... it's not really anybody's fault. And it's I, just the way it is. We'd, I, rather, have the, we'd rather have an, uh, the... Ease of entry for people rather than making it complex for them at the other end. And I would say I think that they the treatment has gotten better in the later episodes. So if yeah, you're listening I, I to think. the early episodes, that they are actually pretty scruffy. But yeah, yeah. yeah.